Indeed, we've come to the final few messages in the life of David as we have gone through the life of this servant of God. And we've learned much about what it means to be a man after God's own heart. And we've learned much about the nature of sin, sin in the lives of God's people. We've seen over and over again how God delights to save his people from sin and their enemies, even from themselves. We continue to rejoice as we come to the end of David's life. And we see here in this passage here in 2 Samuel chapter 22, a song of salvation, a song of worship. David as an old man coming to the end, doing what he does best. Let us give thanks to God this morning and let us pray that his spirit and his power rest upon us. He'd open our eyes and our hearts that we would behold the glories of Christ and all that he has for us in his salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this glorious opportunity to come, to gather in this place, Lord, to sing your praises, to pray your prayers, and ultimately glory in your Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that he would be made much of, that the words of our mouths, indeed the meditations of our hearts, Lord, would be acceptable in your sight. We do it all in the power of your Spirit and in the name of your Son. For his sake we pray. Amen. We know there's There's these honorific titles that people received, particularly in the music world. Aretha Franklin is known as the queen of soul. Elvis Presley is known as the king of rock and roll, though little Richard might have a little something to say about that. Thomas Dorsey is known as the father of gospel. And indeed, perhaps the best of them all is James Brown, who is called, what, Bob? The godfather of soul. But I am convinced this morning that the most honorific and indeed the most blessed title or nickname that anyone has ever received in the music world belongs to David. For in 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 1, God calls David the sweet psalmist of Israel. The sweet singer of Israel. What a title. I want that title. You know, God's looking around for people. Who's the sweet singer of East Point Church? That's me. Give that one to me. Not my wife. Not Alan, (laughs) give that one to me, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Because at the heart of David was a desire to sing the praises of his God. David loved to sing. And we know this because David was a man after God's own heart. And if there's anything at the heart of God, it's these two things. 
It is, the, it is praise and it is prayer. And David was both of these all the days of his life. If he was anything, he was a man of praise and he was a man of prayer. In Psalm 34, David says, I will bless the Lord at all times and his praise shall continually be in my mouth. How often? All times. How frequently? Continuously. That my heart and my mouth would be giving praise and honor and worship to God. I think David understood as well as anybody has ever understood the commands that are given to us in 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. We are given these commands. Rejoice always. Pray nonstop. Give thanks for everything. That's amazing. Rejoice how often? Always. Pray how frequently? Nonstop. Give thanks for what? Everything. You know, I am convinced that if we prayed more often and rejoiced more often and gave thanks more often, we'd sin less often. You're not going to be meditating on your sin if you're meditating seriously on Christ. If you are giving yourself over to prayer always and rejoicing always and giving thanks always, you won't be caught down in the syndrome of woe is me. And this is the commands that are given to us. Come straight out of the Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 and 18. Memorize them, meditate on them, look at them. There it is. Rejoice, pray, and give thanks. And this is David. David David knew this. David knew more than anybody, I believe, that praise and prayer are the foundational posts of the Christian life. Praise and prayer. That as Christians, we need to be a praise field and a prayerful people. As a church, we need to be a praise field and a prayerful church. And this is what we see in the life of David. In this text, we see David as he's coming to the end of his life. And just as we saw him At the beginning of his life, we see him here at the end of his life doing what? Praising and prayer. You know, his body is growing old, but his heart has not grown cold. Even to the end, David is prayerful and he's praise filled because he understands. Those are the foundational posts of the Christian life. You notice our text this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 22 is is a psalm. It's actually a psalm. And in fact, it is Psalm 18, to be exact. It is Psalm 18. 
It is a psalm of thanksgiving. It is a psalm of deliverance. Notice what it begins, how it begins in verse 1. It, it speaks of how David wrote this song as he was reflecting upon how God had delivered him from all of his enemies, including having delivered him from Saul. David is looking back on his life. And he sees that there has been much to give God thanks for because God has been faithful and God has delivered him over and over and over again. Delivered him from the bear. Delivered him from the lion. Delivered him from Goliath. Delivered him from the Philistines. Delivered him from Saul. Delivered him from Absalom. And ultimately delivered him from him. God has been his salvation. And he looks back on his life and he sees that there is much for which to give thanks. He sees that there is much for which to praise God. And what does he do? He praises. That's what he does. We go through this psalm. There's three movements that I want us to see. There's three aspects to this psalm, and they're building to the final aspect, that grand crescendo of salvation. The first part of this song deals with the adoration of the Lord. Then David moves into the indignation of the Lord, which finally brings him to that grand crescendo of all things, which is the salvation of the Lord. But do you see the adoration there in verses 2 through 7? David begins the psalm where all things should begin with praise and adoration toward God. And his adoration grew out of two realities. His adoration of God grew out of two important realities. And the first reality is who or what God is. And the second reality is where David was. But who or what God is? Well, David tells us. David says, the Lord. He calls him the Lord, the almighty creator, the only true and living God, Yahweh. All powerful. The only true and living God. This God, David says, has been my rock. My fortress. My deliverer, my rock, my shield, the horn of my salvation. He has been my savior. Do you hear him? Do you hear the, the, the emotion? Do you hear him rising? Do you hear him running out of words to describe just how good God has been? He says, well, he's been my rock. No, no, he's been my fortress and my deliverer. No, he's been my rock. He's been my shield. He's been my, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge. He's been my savior. One commentator said that David's staccato machine gun exuberance rises out of his utter inability to stretch his praise to match God's splendor. You don't have the words for it. Oh, for a thousand tongues, Charles Wesley said. 
Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Doesn't have the words to describe it. And the more he tries, you can hear the passion and the exuberance rise and rise and rise. Why? Because he's been my fortress. There David is thinking about he's been my safety. That's what a fortress is. Is that safe abode? He's been my fortress, but then he's also been my deliverer. This idea, he's my escape. When enemies are all around me and I can't find no way out, Jesus is my way out. He's been my deliverer. Then he says he's been my shield. That even in the midst of all of my enemies, their fiery darts don't ultimately destroy me. Why? Because he's been a shield all around me. He's been my shield. But then he says he is the horn of my salvation. That's the idea that he is my power. That any strength and power that I have comes from him. That I'm able to stand on my own two feet. It's because it is the power of God. That I have strength in my limbs to do battle with my enemies. It's because the power that up holds me, that stands by me, that stands with me. He's the horn of my salvation. Then he says he is my stronghold. Has the idea of retreat. (laughs) When you get tired, sometimes the battle is overwhelming. I can retreat and I retreat in him. He is my stronghold. He is that place where the enemy cannot get to. And I retreat and I run to him because he is my strong tower and the righteous run into him. And what? There they are safe, he says, and he is my refuge. Right. He is my shelter in the time of the storm. He is my savior. You know what David's saying there? When I think about it, he's my hero. He is my hero. He is my knight in shining armor. He is my Superman. He is my underdog. (laughs) Y'all don't know anything about underdog. They don't know underdog, Bob. Sharon, they don't know underdog. Underdog be Superman three, four times over. Jesus is my hero. That's what David said. But you know what? Of all these descriptions, there's only one that he uses twice. He says, he's my rock. He's just my rock. And, and, and the imagery is so vivid if you would allow your mind to grasp it. He is a rock. In the time of storm, he is a rock as he hides me in the cleft of it. He is my rock. He is my shade from the wiltering sun in the desert. He is my rock. Jesus says, in Matthew chapter 7, it's the foolish man who builds his house upon the sand. But the wise man builds his house upon the rock. 
And then 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us who that rock is. That rock is who? Jesus. Jesus is a rock. My shelter in the time of storm. A lot of songwriters write when he says, I, I build my hope on nothing less than Jesus' love and, and righteousness. I, bear, I, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand because all other ground is sinking. All other ground is stinking. Sand. I build my house. I build my life. I establish my praise and my prayer upon the solid rock that is Jesus. Do you see why now David's a man of prayer? Because he knows what so many of us neglect to know, and that is this Lord our God whom we worship is our rock, and he is immovable. But this also grows out of not only who or what God is, but it grows out of where David was. David remembered when he was in danger, when he was in distress, when death was uh, uh, crouching and knocking at his door, when destruction was all around him. David knew what it felt like to be in danger. He knew what it felt like to have the enemy pursuing you through the days and the nights. To be a wanted man, to have wanted posters all over the kingdom, dead or alive. David knew what it was like to be in danger. He also knew what it was like to be in distress. For more than on one occasion, death came knocking at David's door. David knew what destruction was as he says here that the floods of destruction terrified me. He says they assailed me. The idea is that they terrified him. He was scared because he knew the the nature of the imminent danger that was around him. You know, You read the life of David and you read these words here and you understand that David is not living in a land of make-believe. He knows that following after God does not mean that all your problems are solved. He knows that simply because you have faith in God doesn't mean that all of your enemies are going to lay down and give up. He knows that distress and danger and even death are the reality of the Christian. I was speaking one time to an an older lady and uh, her doctor had diagnosed her with cancer. And she was... She was going to his offices. He was going to the doctor for treatment. 
And as she was talking to me and telling me what she was doing, she, she said to me, but, but you know, I ain't, I'm not claiming it. I'm not speaking. I go up in that office and I tell them, I, I'm not claiming that. I don't believe it. And I said to her, I said, ma'am, with all due respect, you, know, you, you may not claim that cancer, but that cancer might claim you. And the name it and the claim it and the blab it and and grab it foolishness that you have heard over the years is going to do you no good in the end. That's not faith. Faith is not a denial of reality. Faith is not a denial of the cancer. Faith is not a denial that there's a pink slip on your desk. Faith is not a denial that there is no money in the bank. Faith is not a denial that the foreclosure notice has come. Do you know what faith is? Faith is Daniel chapter 3. When the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar tells them that if you don't bow down before these idols, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. Talk about distress. Talk about danger. And they don't go around there saying, Nebuchadnezzar, we, we ain't claiming that. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, there is no furnace. But they look at the king and they say with no uncertainty, listen, king, you may throw us into this fiery furnace. Our God, however, is well able to deliver us. But even if he does not, he is still worthy to be praised. That's faith, beloved. That's what David says. In verse 4, that he's worthy to be praised. Cancer or no cancer, he's worthy to be praised. Pink slip or no pink slip, he's worthy to be praised. Husband, wife, no husband, no wife, he's worthy to be praised. Kids or no kids, he is still worthy to be praised. I know he all right. You ain't got to tell me. I know he all right. He all right. He's all right, Brad. And he's worthy. If I had some shadows in here, I'd be finished already. <laughs> and this David understood. This David understood. And that's why he says, I call on the one who is worthy to be praised. You know what happens? Notice the next movement in it. Then you see the indignation of the Lord. Because when David called upon God, David said, God looked around at my enemies and God got mad. God got angry. Notice what he says there. He called upon the Lord. And he remembered how the Lord answered him. He describes God's exasperation and his indignation. And in other words, David just says, God was angry. God's anger, you know, beloved, it's not like ours. Don't get it wrong. His anger is a holy disposition. 
purely motivated by righteousness and justice. Unlike us, because we get angry. We get angry because we believe we've been wronged or we've been forgotten or we've been stepped on or we've been slighted. Yet we rarely, we rarely ever take into account how often we stepped on others. How often we slighted others. How often we've forgotten others. God isn't like that. God hasn't slighted anybody. God hasn't wronged anyone. God hasn't forgotten anyone. When he gets angry, it is a holy disposition motivated purely by righteousness and justice. It is his wrath. And the Bible says that he's angry at loneliness. He's angry at sin. He's angry at sin. In Proverbs chapter 6, in verse 16, the Bible says, here are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that despises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. God hates sin. Why? Because sin despises God. Sin disrespects God. Sin has marred his creation and defaced the glory of God in creation. Sin takes the glory of the eternal and exchanges it. For the vanity of the present. Sin takes the truth of God and exchanges it for a lie. Sin takes the grace and the mercy of God and tramples it underfoot. This is why God cannot and God will not tolerate sin. All sin, beloved, will be caught will be called into account. God would not be righteous if it is not. God would not be holy if it is not. No one ever, anywhere, ever gets away with anything. Ultimately, God is going to balance the scales. Ultimately, all receipts are going to come due. Sooner or later, the Lord is going to take inventory. The only question is, what side of the ledger are you going to be on? Because God is not only angry at sin. God is angry at sinners. His holy wrath and righteous indignation is not only against the concept of sin, but actually against the men and women, the hearts and minds, the hands and, and feet, the thoughts and words that do the sinning. In Psalm 7, verse 11, says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. He is angry at the wicked Every 
day. And every day, this anger and wrath is kindled against those who disrespect and disobey him. But it is particularly acute, and this is what David learned, it is particularly acute against those who trouble his people. In Psalm 105 and verse 15, it says, Touch not my anointed and do my prophets no harm, God says. Because God loves his people. And this is why when David called upon him and he saw the distress, he saw the danger, and he saw the enemies assailing David, the Bible says, then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because God was angry. Smoke came from his nostrils. A devouring fire came from his mouth. Why? Because God will move heaven and earth to save his people. In fact, beloved, he has. He has. He has. That is what he has done. Whether it's Saul, whether it's Satan, whether it's sin, it doesn't matter. God in his holy indignation will not allow his people to be destroyed. This is why you don't have to get angry with your enemies. God already is. You need to pray for them. Because they are in danger. This is why the Bible tells us, doesn't tell us to hate our enemies. What does the Bible tell us to do? To love our enemies. Why? Because they are already under the wrath of God. And God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. You don't have to get angry with your enemies. God already is. We need to pray for them that they would be- repent before God shows up. Because he's coming. He's coming. He is faithful and he has promised that he is coming. And when he comes, heaven and earth is going to shake. When he comes, he's not coming as a little baby in a manger with the angels gathered around and, and singing. Peace on earth and goodwill toward men. No, he's coming and the earth will quake. For fire will come out of his nostrils. There will be a sword in his hand. And he will call all into account. And he will put his beloved people on one side. And have them enter into his joy. And all of his enemies he will put on the other side. And they will be cast out into the realities of a fiery hell where there is weeping, gnashing, and tears. That's the reality. This is what David knew. He called upon the Lord. And the Lord showed up. And he shook the heavens. And he made the earth quake. For what purpose? For the salvation of his people. That's what he does. 
because his indignation is not an end in and of itself. God doesn't just get God is not getting mad just to get mad. God is not angry just to be angry. God is angry because he has the end of salvation in mind. And so you see that. From the adoration to the indignation. And what happens when God shows up? You see the salvation of the Lord. You see it there in verses 17 through 20. Now, this is the ultimate goal and the ultimate glory of God. God is a deliverer. That's what he is. God is a savior. He is salvation. Notice what David says as he sings this song, something very telling. Twice he uses the phrase, he rescued me. You see that in verse 18 and again in verse 20. He rescued me. Certain aspects of this rescue I want you to see. The first thing is that this rescue is personal. It's a personal rescue. You see that in in verse 17. God did it. God did it. He didn't send another, but he came himself, David said. God himself showed up. He reached down from on high. He drew me out of the many waters. God did it. Salvation is of the Lord. And when it came time to save his people, what did God do? He came himself. He came himself. He came down in Christ Jesus, did he not? In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, the Bible says that Jesus, who was to be born, would be called Emmanuel, God with us. God came. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 19, the Bible says that Christ was the manifestation of the fullness of God. The fullness of deity in bodily form. Why? Because God himself came down. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19, the Bible says, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. When it came time to save his people, God didn't send a preacher. He didn't send a prophet. He didn't send an angel. He didn't send the king. He came himself. That's what David said. He reached down. He came down. He drew me out of the many waters. Why? Because I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, deeply stained and stained within, seeking to rise no more. Who? But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. And from the waters, who? He lifted me. And now safe am I. They don't know that, Brad, but you and I, we know that. And that's why we sing, love lifted me. Love lifted me when no one else could help. It was God. It was God who did it. Why? Because for God. Your salvation is personal. Your rescue is personal. And he came himself. But not only is it personal, David tells us also it's powerful. You see that in verse 18. 
It's a powerful rescue. Why? Because without God, salvation is impossible. And David said that the enemy was too strong for him. My enemy was too strong. The enemy was too mighty. In other words, you can't save yourself. Can't do it. Satan is too much for you. Your sin is too much for you. You need Jesus. You can't do it. David understood that. He looked around him and he said, "Uh -uh, these are too much. These are too mighty. These are too powerful. God knows that. You understand that? God knows that. God knows your enemies are too much for you. God knows the sin is too powerful for you. God knows that left to our own devices, our sin sin would overwhelm us in a moment. God knows left to ourselves, we would run willingly and joyfully into the world to our own destruction. Because the world is too mighty and too powerful for us, but not for Jesus. As the old preacher said, Herod couldn't kill him, death couldn't hold him, and the grave couldn't handle him. Couldn't do it. And that's what you need to know, beloved. That your rescue is a powerful rescue. Because he who came down is more powerful than all your sin. He who came down is more powerful than all your enemies. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Because our rescue is a powerful rescue. But it's not just a personal and a powerful one. Amazingly, our rescue is a precious one too. This is absolutely amazing when you think about it. It's a precious one. In verse 20, He says that God doesn't just rescue you, but he also rewards you. He doesn't just deliver you, he delights in you. See what David said there? He brought me out of a tight spot. I was in a tight spot. He brought me out into a broad way so that he could delight in me. This is absolutely amazing. That he would deliver you so that you can delight in him. David understood this in Psalm 23. He gets to the end of the psalm and he says what? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Why? Because the salvation of the Lord is not just the forgiveness of your sins. That's just where it begins. God doesn't rescue you out of the depths of the sea, put you on the shore, and say, there, you're safe. Now, I got other things to do. But no, no. Forgiveness, rescue, deliverance is just the beginning. Now God is going to delight. He's going to take off those raggedy clothes. He's going to give you new clothes. 
He's got to throw away all that fast food you've been eating, and he's got to come and say, sit down and eat from the bread of heaven. He's got to take you out of that sinful and marry shack that you've been living in, and he's going to bring you into the glorious house and his mansions and his family, and he's going to sit you down at his table forever. He's going to do you like the father did the prodigal son. He's going to put a ring on your finger. He's going to kill a fatted calf. He's going to rejoice over you all the days of your life. By the song says, he picked me up out of miry clay. He put my feet on a rock to stay, and he put a song in my soul today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's what he did. He didn't just pick me up, but he turned me around, and he placed my feet on solid ground. That's what he did. I don't know, I don't know all that Fanny Crosby was talking about. But I know what? This is my story. This is my song. Because when I think about all that the Lord has done for me, he rescued me. He rescued me from me. He rescued me from my sin. He rescued me from the way that I thought was the way of life, but the end was only destruction. He rescued me. And this is my story. This is my song, singing the praises of my Savior all the day long. This is my story. I read there in David's psalm, and I see myself. And I wonder, Why don't I praise more? Why don't I lift my hands in the sanctuary? Why don't they hear me singing loudly? No sweeter name than Jesus. Why don't they see me jumping for joy? Because there is no sweeter name than Jesus. When the woman came to Jesus, she was sitting in the house of the rich and famous. And she came in there with her alabaster box and she broke it on his feet and she began to wash his feet with her hair. And they looked around and they said, if he only knew the sinfulness of the woman who is touching him. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. She understands. Because who has been forgiven much, loves much. In other words, beloved, who has been forgiven much, prays much. Now, this is what, this is my theory. The reason why you don't shout when you should shout is because you don't consider how much you've been forgiven. You don't understand the depth of your depravity and where the Lord has brought you from. You have not considered lately just how good God has been. So you sit there with your hands in your pockets. And you sit there thinking you know the song, but I wonder if you know the Savior that you're singing about. Because, beloved, 
to whom who has been forgiven much, they praise much. And this is why David is the sweet psalmist of Israel. Because David knew more than anybody how much he had been forgiven. Do you? Do you? Really? Do you? What is your story? What is your song? Are you willing and ready to praise your Savior? All, all, all the day long. Oh, I pray we are. I pray, I pray that we would be a praise field and a prayerful people because we know who God is and how he has rescued us, how he has lifted us, how he has saved us. Oh, what a wonderful God and glorious Savior we have. Let's pray.